Welcome to Broadviews with Tabitha Wallace. I'm Tabitha Wallace. Please support this podcast and more by subscribing for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com forward slash Tabitha Wallace. Today on Broadviews, I'd like to use this collective breath we're all taking to look at some of the things that we obsessed about in the months before the pandemic hit and how we can think about the effects of these obsessions to better re-enter the world we're currently quarantined from. The Bernie Bro narrative is, well, just that, a narrative. Traditionally defined, a narrative is a spoken or written account of connected events. In short, it's a story. Unfortunately, this particular story seems to be more about trolls wanting upping each other online than it has anything to do with the Democratic Party candidate to be the nominee for president in this fall's election, a certain Mr. Bernie Sanders. Currently, the Democratic Party's convention has been pushed from June to July and may happen virtually due to the coronavirus pandemic sweeping across the U.S. and the world. The candidates are, for all intents and purposes, in a dead heat for delegates with numerous states who haven't voted yet. So let's take a look back to a narrative that never seems to get old, the Bernie bro narrative. I recently spoke with one of those Bernie Sanders supporters whose support of his chosen candidate has made him part of that narrative. Gregory Harden is a student, an activist, and the host of the Green Corn Rebellion podcast, where he discusses everything from politics to metal music. And joining us from Oklahoma, here is Gregory Harden. Uh, I'm Gregory Harden II. I am the host of the Green Corn Rebellion show on YouTube, and I'm also a college student at the University of Central Oklahoma. And uh, what are you studying? I am studying history. I'm a history education major. That's a that's a pretty important thing right now. Yeah. Considering we don't seem to have a very good grasp of history, at least in, in the United States right now. How does that how does the world you look at right now being a history student, looking at it through that lens, what do you see? Ooh. Um I see things repeating themselves. Um, that's one thing. <laughs> what, what got you into history in, in the first place? Uh, it was always something that interested me, even when I was like a kid. Um, I got more, uh, kind of more interested in it when I was in high school, but never really thought too much about it until I decided to think of what I wanted to major in in college. So it was like my junior year, I um, thought of what's my best subject, and my best subject was always history. So I decided, okay, I'll, I'll major in that, and I'll teach, because it's something valuable to society. I'll have an impact that way. So, yeah. Do you still feel that way? Yeah, I do. That's good. I know so many people, especially history teachers or people that go into education and history, that it's hard not to get down as if what you're doing isn't important. Um, and that kind of brings me to now. It's like how, what you do right now, like what we're every day we're making history, all of us. Um, how do you make history every day? I don't know. Um, how do I personally make history every day? Yeah. Like what, what do you do every day? Cause you know, you're not just going to school. You have this podcast. You're very vocal. Well, I mean, I interview candidates that are running for office and people who are already in office. So that's, you know, a part of history right there. Cause you know, I get to give these people a voice to be able to say what they want to say and 
get it on record. Who's the, what are some of your favorite, how long have you been doing the, the podcast? It's the Green Gordon Rebellion, correct? Yeah, Green Gordon Rebellion show. Uh, I've been doing it since May of last year. Uh, so almost a year. And uh, where's the name come from? The name comes from this thing that happened uh, around World War One or before World War One. The point it happened not too far away from where I live currently, and it was this "quote unquote" rebellion among uh, different people of uh, different backgrounds: black people, Native Americans, white working people. And that's kind of why I named the show that because, you know, that I'm a socialist, uh, this Oklahoma Socialist Party was involved in it, and it's about people of different backgrounds coming together. So that's why I named it that. Well, now, if if I listen to the mainstream media, which obviously everyone who knows me knows I listen to them intently and believe everything they say, um, <laughs> I would believe that there are no socialists in Oklahoma. There's plenty of us. I mean, we have a Oklahoma City DSA. We also have a, a Tulsa Green County a Green Country DSA. So yeah, we exist out here. What's that? I mean, I come from a, a rural Wisconsin town, like very rural, like twelve hundred people, and it's always funny to me when they act shocked that there are socialists in you know the quote unquote flyover states and. I'm sort of like, they may not call it that, but I don't know if you know how much socialism actually happens out there, how much, you know, labor history has happened in those places. That wasn't, you know, capitalism that did that, that got us an eight hour, you know, a 40 hour work week or any of the things we have now. We deserve much more, but I mean, we wouldn't even be where we're at if it weren't for these people. What is that like for you with the mainstream media sort of narrative about people from, say, Oklahoma or Texas or these places that feel more rural to commentators? Well, how do you feel about what they say about you? Uh, it's not so much me. I try not to personalize it so much. But as in, like, I, whenever I hear about these people talking about how conservative we are, and whatnot and how certain ideas won't be okay in areas like Oklahoma, like legalizing marijuana. A couple of years ago, we uh, legalized uh, medical marijuana. And that was, what was it? I believe it got like almost 60% of the vote um, statewide here. Um, certain things like criminal justice reform gets put on the ballot and it ends up winning overwhelmingly. Um, like some of those progressive type ideas are actually really popular and, you know, they try to act like those kinds of ideas are popular out in these areas and they really are. Um, you just have to go out there, campaign for them and win. Yeah. And that, you know, we're in the middle of probably one of the most important elections of our time that we'll remember, we'll all talk about this, like 2016 will be lost when when historians start talking about 2020. Uh, obviously, uh, Elizabeth Warren has suspended her campaign yep. and uh, is, you know, mulling over what her next steps are, obviously who she's going to 
end up either maybe running with or endorsing. Mm-hmm. Although I have my, I don't think it's Biden because he kind of tweeted something that was a little like kind of a burn, like she's great, but we need her in the Senate. And I'm like, oh, she's not even going to be in your cabinet then. Well, wow. uh, which leads me to believe it's probably, you know, Bernie. Hopefully. Or nothing. I feel, I just can't, it would be hard. It would break, it would break my cold, dark heart. If she did that, like, I don't know, I have zero hope in politicians, but it's like, sometimes I'm like, just don't go that far. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're kind of in a, a two, two old white man race. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm shocked. I know you are. Um, <laughs> imagine. Um, how do you feel as someone who's 22 years old, you know, socialist? You care about labor laws. You care about, you know, working class issues. How do you feel right now about the race? Um, a little bit disappointed from the Super Tuesday results because I was hoping Bernie would have done better in a couple other states. But uh, we're still waiting for the results from California. Um, Bernie's supposed to win there. But uh, uh, currently I'm feeling... A little bit more positive because I know that there's going to be some more states coming up and some of the states might be more favorable to Bernie Sanders and it, the race isn't over yet. Uh, I'm still pretty confident that Bernie will end up being the nominee. Yeah. I mean, I think there was a lot of, you know, the night of Super Tuesday, a lot of a lot of people online and in real life I encountered who were very n- negative they immediately were like, well, that's it. Biden's getting the nomination. This is, it's going to happen. It's done. And uh, it's funny because when you really look at the numbers, we're like, they're neck and neck right now, practically. And like you said, we haven't finished counting California. That's going to take another couple of days. Bernie's probably going to pick up a bunch more delegates there. And then, you know, we've got the Midwest. And I... How do you feel about Biden? You know, how do you feel about him as a as a candidate? How is he going to do in a working class environment? Or, I mean, first of all, it's just Biden. Let's talk about that. How do you feel about Biden? Oh wow, um, not very good, honestly. Um, first of all, he's how do I say this nicely? His uh, mental state is declining. Can I say that? I think that's okay. Yeah, some things and some other stuff and something, something. Yeah. And, um, I mean, he's never really been that great of a politician to begin with. I mean, he has a history of working with segregationists in order to keep segregation going. Uh, he, he wrote the crime bill of 94 and uh, supported the Iraq war, supported every trade deal that sent jobs overseas. Uh, he's he doesn't have a very great record, uh, so I don't really feel very positive about him, and I'd rather not someone with that horrible record be the nominee. Yeah, I think it's funny that we all saw the numbers from 2016 about you know how Bernie would have done in those states, and I know from my personal experience that people I knew there were much they would have voted for Bernie, mm-hmm. but they didn't, and some of them did vote. A lot of them voted for Trump. Um, and one of the issues with Biden is he has this history and it's not that long ago. 
And even if you didn't live through it, you can Google it. <laughs> yep. You can see him talking to Anita Hill. Like, you can see it. It's right there. It's not a hidden thing. This election brought out a lot of, of really, obviously, a lot of ugliness from every side, which it kind of always does. I think the Internet's made it probably more <clears throat> vicious. Yeah. Because you can kind of hide a little bit. Um, but probably the most prevailing narrative about Bernie and his really about Bernie's supporters, which in turn they use to sort of use against Bernie, is is this Bernie bro narrative. Yeah. Um, you know, and it went back to even Gloria Steinem, who broke my heart on Real Time with Bill Maher when she said this, you know, I think the girls are going for Bernie because that's where the boys are. And I was like, oh, Christ. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh. Oh, mama feminist, you need to sit down. <laughs> Some things need to be discussed. That Bernie bro narrative has persisted, and there have been a lot of think pieces, and people have really like dug into this. How does that make you feel of this Bernie bro narrative that you are, you know, this, you know, troll? <laughs> you're just a white, you're, by the way, you're a white male troll, most likely, just in case you weren't aware of that. How do you feel about that, the Bernie bro narrative? Well, I feel like, uh, in, I think in 2016, it was definitely used uh, against Bernie Sanders and against the supporters in order to deflect from the actual message of the campaign and the actual issues of the campaign, which are which is that Bernie Sanders' platform is actually going to be the most beneficial to people of color and women. Uh, and so to, in order to deflect from that, you have to paint all of the supporters as, you know, white males in order to make it look as if that's not what his um, agenda is about, you know? And I didn't really like that in 2016, whenever I was a Bernie supporter in high school. And I just thought it was really odd because I was like, no, like, I'm not white. Uh, my mom's not white. My dad isn't white. Uh I don't I don't think so. I feel like I stand to benefit from most of the things that he's talking about. And I think most of my family would, regardless if they are or aren't supporting Bernie. Uh, and now it's just it's completely gone out of hand. It's more than just that. It's simply just used as just a way to go at get at Bernie Sanders. Now you have people talking about how, oh, I would have supported Bernie, but you know, some Bernie bro said something mean to me on Twitter. Now I can't support Medicare for all. And it's just, it's really, right. it's really weird. And uh, uh, I don't, I feel like it's really overblown because like there's supporters of other candidates who are also mean online. The only reason yeah. why you see that it's, see Bernie supporters more often is because he has a larger support group than all the other candidates because I have a friend, he's compiled a archive of different centrists on Twitter saying horrible, horrible things about Bernie and his supporters and people who work for his campaign. So it's not like it's just Bernie supporters who supposedly say horrible things online. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's how I feel about that. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, it, it makes me wonder if no, well, I see these same people 
And I see the same people talking about this, you know, how horrible, you know, it's, oh, these Bernie bros online and all of this attack and this is how you are. And it's so bad that I don't want to vote for him, blah, blah, blah. His, you know, his, his followers are toxic, all of this stuff. And I think when I look at what the actual, what they're bringing up, I mean, you know, obviously there's like, there's legitimate cases where someone's just way over the line. That's someone who just does that. It has nothing to do with their political affiliation. They're just using that badge as a as a shield. Um, but it makes me wonder if none of these people remembered Gamergate and why it wasn't like why this like awful, horrible abuse that went around, like none of that. That was so like we can't have that's pointless. Let's not talk about it. And it's not that bad. Are the same people now being like uh, Bernie and Browse said Elizabeth Warren isn't perfect to me, and I don't like it. Which some of a very large percentage of it is, and then it's just two people arguing online back and forth, like moving the goalpost and doing this whole semantic argument. And the truth is, it's like, look, you know, we're not we're not going to get the White House back from a crazy person until we, you know, have a conversation and get over ourselves. Because I think this, you know, Trump gave us this ego. It's like the ego is so big and so high that everyone else feels like they kind of have to fill up the space. Mm -hmm. How do, do you, I mean, you feel positive about, you know, Bernie going into, you know, now this, this like last big leg of, you know, the primaries. What are some of the, what are some of the things you like you're hoping will come out of the next few weeks? Aside from just delegates. Um, I'm hoping that Bernie's campaign talks more about Joe's positions or previous positions on free trade, like NAFTA, because we're going to states like Michigan and stuff like that. And also, I hope that they keep talking about his previous positions on cutting Social Security, because uh, that's a pretty big deal. So that's what I'm hoping to see, aside from just Bernie getting more delegates. Tell me about a video you were involved in recently, especially going back to the whole like Bernie bro narrative. It was just a bunch of, you know, white dudes. Uh, tell me about this video you were involved in. Uh, yes. Um, Benjamin Dixon, a couple of, about a month ago, maybe, he put out a tweet saying, hey, if you're a Black Bernie supporter, DM me. And I was like, okay. And I know Ben Dixon, so I DM'd him. I was like, what's up? And then he said, make a video of why you support Bernie. And I was like, okay. And I did it. And then he said he was going to compile a video of black people and supporting Bernie and put it out. And then that's what he did. And it turned out pretty great. And Bernie Sanders ended up quote tweeting it. Uh, and it was pretty cool. Like, Huge. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's what's interesting is that, you know, the minute someone puts out a narrative like that where they're trying to say, like, oh, it's just mostly white people or it's, you know, mostly anything. Um, it's, you know, it's like Biden winning in the South. He won older black voters, but he didn't win younger black voters. Like, there's a distinction and there's a reason for, you know, actually looking at the data clearly instead of like being emotional about it, which is what much of what our news coverage is now. How do you think, you know, at 22 years old, how do you, what do you think needs to change in, 
you know, not just the news and in media, but what needs to change overall for you uh, to feel, you know, to get to a point where you feel like people would be better educated, people would have more information or be more informed, I guess? Yeah, uh, I'd like to see more people's voices uh, represented. I'll just use it for an example, MSNBC. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like there's very few, if any, pro-Bernie voices or left-wing voices uh, on any of these uh, cable news stations. Therefore, you kind of get the same um, milquetoast, overplayed talking points thrown around all the time. And so therefore you don't um, get an actual wide view of what other people think or believe or whatnot. Because if you're just listening to Joy and Reed, or uh, I think Bakari Sellers is on CNN. But if you're just listening to those two talk about, you know, black people, you're not really getting an actual... Um, full perspective of about what black voters believe because I think both of them are full of crap and I'm a young black voter. <laughs> so yeah. What's what, it, what are some of those things? Like why, why are we so, I mean, it's 2020, how with all the information and all the data, how do these consultants and these political pollsters, how do they keep getting black people so wrong? I don't know. That's that's something I've been trying to figure out. Um, and I still don't quite have an answer for it. I mean, I just find myself a lot of times looking at and listening to analysis by, by other white people, as I am very, very white myself. Um, but it's like, I'm shocked. I'm like, do you not realize how racist that sounds? And I realize if I, if I made a big thing and like tweeted that and been like, this is so racist. If I did that, I would just get hammered with, oh my God, you're a reactionary. And really I'm like, okay, it's a couple layers down, but it's still kind of racist. Yeah. (laughs) What are the worst things? Like, what are like, what are some of the things that you've heard the worst, like bad political takes on black voters? Um, Oh, that we're all really conservative or that we're all more conservative than white voters. That one's probably like the big one because I don't really think that that's true at all. I mean, sure, we there are some black voters that may be kind of conservative, but to the extent like we, I, I just don't believe that we're more conservative than any other voting bloc, uh, especially not reference to the democratic party um especially when most of the representatives that we send to congress i mean i don't necessarily like all of them but some of them tend to be more some of the more liberal members of the democratic uh caucus so i just don't i just don't see that um bearing out in any kind of uh reality And that kind of makes me think about this because we have all these, you know, everybody sort of factioned off into groups and, you know, it's like playing an RPG video game where it's like you have to decide, 
you know, will you join this army or will you join these rebels or will you join this person? And it's how difficult will be the, the game be? And you, well, you know, depending on what side you pick. Mm-hmm. And we're all kind of trying to figure out like which clique we're in, like it's high school. And that has led to this very, you know, there's there's these very distinct factions. And then, you know, first there was like the birdie bro. And then now there's the dirtbag left. Yeah. What is, and you have it in your bio, bio that's why I'm laughing, which I was, because it's, you know, it's come up that everybody's brought it up. And some of that's because of, you know, Chapo's Trap House. And some of it's just something that's been going on for a long time. Um, what is a dirtbag leftist? You know, that, I'm not sure how to explain that one. I just know that it is, it, it's a vibe. It, it, to, to me, the way I explained it is that it's a vibe. It's the vibe that people like uh, Chapo Trap House and the guys in Pod Damn America, it's a vibe that they give off. Uh, a lot of them tend to be pretty funny people, comedians, so maybe they might be a little edgy sometimes, you know. Um, but to me, they represent some of the more uh what is it i think they you could say normie part of the left that aren't so um uh boat shoes and cardigans i guess yes that's what i'm looking for (laughs) (laughs) but yeah but i i identify with the chapo guys and the guys from pod damn america and whenever i listen to them I just, I see part of myself in them, and that's why I identify as a dirtbag leftist. You know, there's this overarching idea that this, you know, sort of our, I don't even know who, whose idea of what political correctness is supposed to be, even like what, what the definition is supposed to be, because everyone's got their own version these days. You know, everybody has something that really, really is, they're offended by. And I have the same, I have the same shit. Like, I get it. Like, I get stuff where I'm like, so pissed off about this. And it isn't even necessarily stuff that affects me. It's that it affects other people. And, you know, there's the whole idea of being a snowflake. You know, we're all too sensitive. We're getting triggered. It's, you know, I feel like we start to fight back against the labels because it's respectability politics. That's, you're a dirtbag because you don't want to, dress in the right clothes and come to the right rallies and do things the correct way. Yes. And you're supposed to say things, you know, a certain way, a certain way that tends to be at least in the construct of an election cycle, a pretty waspy point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that's part of it? Is this very white respectability that our politics has because our, you know, our politicians are still primarily white aside from being primarily a man, <laughs> they're primarily white. Obviously, you know, you know, and then everybody brings up, hey, we had a black president, so, like, everything's totally cool now. Um, how has growing up through the Obama years and now seeing where we are now, how do you feel about, like, that evolution? Ooh, um, in a lot of ways, it makes, I mean, how do I say this? Growing up through the Obama years, I mean, I remember Bush a little bit too. So I, what I remember about the Obama years is being disappointed in his first term that he didn't do some of the things I thought he was going to do, like give us single payer or 
jail the bankers or anything like that or end the wars. He didn't do that either. Um, or help hold the previous administration accountable for the wars. So I kind of see if the, um, the Trump or the Trump years as kind of inevitable based upon that. If you're not going to hold the previous administration accountable for its wrongdoings, and then if you're going to continue doing some of the stuff that some of the wrong stuff that the previous administration did, then what do you expect the next administration is going to do? <laughs> so that's kind of how I feel about that. Um, I don't, I, I guess maybe this is because I'm young. Cause I feel like this is like a older person thing to freak out over every single thing Trump does says and does. Because to me, I'm just kind of like, the Republicans have always been bad. I don't know where you people have been at. Like, in my lifetime, like, we had George Bush, and that was horrible. I guess- they called him evil. Yes. They like- called him the devil. And just to be clear, when I say they, it means I called him that. I was I a hundred times a day was like, is he? And then I'd be like, I mean, he's not really, really evil. He's just really. And then I'd be like, just kidding. He's, he's, he's evil. He's <laughs> the worst. Yeah. That's why I'm like, oh, my God, we can't criticize the president. I was like, oh, we're going to go through this again. Because then it was, you can't criticize the president. We're at war. Yeah. Well, tough shit. First Amendment, bitch. <laughs> like, I just don't understand. Like, there's a point of me. It's like, you know, there's certain things I'm like, mm, I'm not comfortable with that, but mm, not really my place. Like, I'm not going to tell someone else not to say it or do that. It's, you know, there's a mute button. There's a block button. There's, you can change the channel. Yeah. We have many options for things right now, but, you know, we have to figure out ways to just be upset. But I think it's just because we want to, if we're upset about something else that we, we aren't upset about the, you know, the really, really important stuff, which is, you know, hey, I might go bankrupt because I break my leg. Um, you know, the ice caps are melting. We're all going to die from coronavirus. Yeah. So, you know, you're 22 and it seems that, you know, right now you have you know, boomers who want to burn everything down and Gen Xers and, and millennials and stuff screaming to the high heavens, we're all going to die. And like all this bad stuff is happening. How do you at 22 look at that and go like, I want to be part of the solution? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you kind of, I kind of can't help but look at that and think I want to be a part of the solution or at least help. Because it's, I mean, what else are you going to do? You can't just, I, I don't feel, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't feel as though I shouldn't do anything. Like, I feel like I have to at least speak or speak on something, vote, do something about what's going on. Especially since, you know, there's climate change. That's a big issue for me. Let's let's leave it with this. My last question to you is what is a message you would at 22 years old would you like to send to you know any older voters? I'd like to be able to have a planet that is uh livable whenever they're gone. <laughs> that's what that's one message and another message is I would like for the younger generations to be able to make a decent living without having to live under so much stress because they're not able to afford things. So there's that, those two things. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and, you know, giving us a little insight into 
you know, your typical Bernie bro dirtbag leftist over there in Oklahoma. Thank you for having me on. I really enjoy it. It's great. And, uh, you know, I think I'll probably let's let's meet back up in a couple of months when we get closer to uh, the convention and stuff and see where things are at. And yeah, chat again. Thank you so much for coming on, Gregory. Uh, Gregory Harden II. Check out his podcast, uh, The Green Corn Rebellion. The links will be on this post and everywhere else. Thank you so much for joining me, Gregory. Welcome. Thank you for being a patron to Broadviews with Tabitha Wallace. Your patronage allows me to explore topics with people I would never get to pretty much anywhere else. Take a moment to leave comments, suggestions, share the Patreon with your friends so we can go from audio to video podcasts and so much more. Thank you again for supporting Broadviews with Tabitha Wallace. Take care of each other out there.